Amen. Well, uh, Pastor Simon is off this weekend. He is uh, keeping up with one of his uh, traditions with his friends of being together with uh, the Super Bowl. So I am uh, here on Super Bowl Sunday to talk about love. <laughs> so um, I am not an expert, by the way, just so you know. Uh, but, but God's word is, and, and that will um, guide us as we move along today. Um, but it is Super Bowl Sunday, and it's also Valentine's Day weekend. I don't know who thought of putting together those two things, because uh, I'm sure the guys are like, yes, it's Super Bowl Sunday, and the women are like, yes, it's Valentine's Day weekend, and you have this conflict, right? The guys are thinking about the game today, and the women are thinking about love, right? Um, do I have that about right? It sounds like it from your, your chuckles in, in the room, but uh, in, in all seriousness, though, uh, what do you think about when you hear the word love? What comes to mind? Uh, if, you're, if someone's going to ask you, uh, what do you think love is? What is love? How would you answer them? Uh, depending on the age of the person answering uh, that question, you'd probably get a, a variety of, of responses. You could be like the man on the street, right? Asking different people that question. You'd get different answers depending on their ages. Um, but from the time of childhood to adulthood, that answer is probably going to fluctuate because hopefully love matures, right? Hopefully that person's understanding of love matures. Uh, for instance, when I was a child and it came to Valentine's Day at school, I kind of dreaded it a little bit because, you know, everybody in the classroom is supposed to hand out some kind of like uh, two cent card that gets made and it's got all the, you know, words uh, on there that relate to love or, or kindness uh, that expresses some kind of feeling related to love. And I would want to be very strategic and careful about who got what card because I didn't want any misunderstandings to happen when I was like in the second and third grade, right? I didn't want anybody to get the wrong idea. And um, truth be told, right, I way overthought Valentine's Day uh, as I was a kid. Um, but like I said, uh, there's young years, and then there's, as you get older, as you mature in life, uh, love became so much more than just an expression of an act of kindness on a particular day of the year. Love became a commitment to another's well-being. Love became a commitment to another's well-being. Um, earlier this week, as I was thinking about this topic, uh, I decided to ask uh, two very knowledgeable sources about what love is. I feel like I need to move this back just a tad, the sound. And the first source I asked was Surrey. <laughs> I said, Suri, what is love? And Suri had this answer. As I understand it, love refers to a deep, tender, ineffable feeling of affection and solicitude. You try it later, see if you get the same response. <laughs> and this graduate student had no idea what the word ineffable means, so I had to look it up. And ineffable is... Uh, something that is too great or extreme to be expressed or described in words. And then I also had to look up the word solicitude. Solicitude is care or concern for someone or something. So Suri's definition of love as she understands it is predominantly understood as a wide range of feelings or emotions. Suri may sound wise, 
but it kind of sounds a little incomplete at the same time. So I turned to Google. <laughs> I said, Google, hey Google, what is love? And Google took me to all-knowing Wikipedia, which describes love this way. Love encompasses a range of strong and positive emotional and mental states from the most sublime virtue or good habit, the deepest interpersonal affection to the simplest pleasure. It sounds to me like Google or Wikipedia's definition of love is not a whole lot different than what Suri said. And quite honestly, I don't think Suri and Google are too far off on how today's culture understands the nature of love. Uh, because for a lot of people, love is defined by their emotional feelings. Now, one of the wonderful things about the Bible is that it is God's special revelation to mankind. If we want to know what God declares about himself and what he has to say to humanity, all we have to do is go to the Bible. The Bible is God's truth. It doesn't contain Lies. You can trust what it says is true because it records the words of God and the words of God flow out of his character. The Bible is, is meant to be our instruction manual for life. It is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And one of the things I love about the Bible is it reveals to us and teaches us what God wants us to know and think as it relates to living our lives. But God just doesn't want us to know certain doctrinal truths, he wants us to be changed by them. He wants us to live them out. He wants us to practice them. He wants us to see that his way is good for us. So the Bible is not just a, a record of history. It's not just doctrinal truths, although it is those things, but it's much more than those. It's because understanding the Bible rightly leads to life transformation. A few moments ago, I asked how you would answer the question, what is love? Well, today's passage I'll be teaching from gives us some biblical guidelines on, on how we ought to think about love. And often our understanding of something is only as good as its source, only as good as the source we have. And so now with the time we have left, I want to take us to the ultimate source, the Bible, which instructs us in love. So if you have a Bible, please open it to 1 John 2, 7-14, or you can follow along up on the side screens, uh, or if you came today and you don't have a Bible but would, you would like to have one, uh, we would love for you to have a, a free copy. We have Bibles in our back lobby right back there on the back table. Feel free to grab one of those if you would like one. It's our gift to you. So 1 John 2, 7-14, that is our passage today. And the primary theme of today's passage, like we've already mentioned, is love. And here in this passage, just to let you know where we're going with it, uh, John is going to remind the church that love is the highest law, that love is of supreme value to God, and that value is found in God's commands. John is going to say that the command to love is both old and new, and we'll unpack what he means by that. He also, he also wants us to know that love is practical and that it, it's so practical it's supposed to shine in the life of the followers of Jesus. And lastly, 
when we have a proper understanding of the love of God that's demonstrated to us in his son Jesus, then we'll grow in our spiritual maturity of being more like Jesus. And so what John wants us to know in this whole passage and what you want to take home today is that being a follower of Jesus means that love is a way of life. Love is a way of life. So with that, let's read 1 John 2, 7 to 14. You can follow along with me in the Bible, on your Bible app, or up on the side screen. And John writes this. He says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So, John opens up in the big main point here, if you're taking notes or it'll be up on the screen, the big main point right off the bat in the first two verses is that the command to love is both old and new. So let's talk about what he means by that. How can something both be old and new? There are two ways to know that love is the commandment that John is talking about here. Uh, one is from our passage last week, uh, which was First uh, John 2, 1 to 6, and in verses 4 and 5, John connects love to obedience of God's commands. And then, as we read right here in verse 10, John says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. So base, if you look at that, if you look at the whole passage from 2, 1 down to where we just read, you'll see that based on John's flow of thought here in this passage, love is the topic he is addressing. It's of top of mind to him. And at the end of verse 7 there, John says that the command to love is an old commandment that these believers have already heard about. And what that means is what it, what it means that it's an old commandment is that it was taught in the Old Testament, particularly in God's law that he gave through Moses. Uh, Jesus affirmed this in his ministry in Matthew 22, 36 to 40 Jesus is asked by one of the Pharisees what the greatest commandment was. And here's how Jesus answered that. The Pharisee says, teacher, he's addressing Jesus as teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart 
and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And that's from Deuteronomy 6.5. So Jesus is quoting the law. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6.5. And then he's going to quote another verse out of the law. He's going to quote Leviticus 19.18. So Jesus answers in verse 39. He says, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, the entire word of God up to this point contains, this is the essence of everything. Really, these two commands are summed up in one word. Jesus takes two commands, sums them up into one word, and says that the essence of following God and his commands is love. Love is at the heart of God's commands. And Jesus is saying that a true follower of God will that's going to show in practical, tangible love for your neighbor. And even the Ten Commandments reflect this pattern of loving God and loving your neighbor. Because the first four reflect a love for God, and then the, the other six reflect a love for neighbor, for those around you, who you come into contact with. So God's command you know, to love, that's, that's, that's nothing new. That command had been around for a long time. And John writes that this old command, this is something that they had, he says, you guys had this from the beginning. And we have to remember that John is addressing a church that is composed of both Jews and Gentiles. So those who would have been Jewish clearly would have been taught about God's commands to love him and to love others from the earliest days of their life. So the Jewish Christians had known and heard about God's command to love from their Old Testament days, from their synagogue days. Uh, So that's one possible meaning of, of what's going on there. And then here's another, is that the Gentile Christians also may have heard about the command to love from other Jews that they lived around. But at the end of the day, more likely what's going on here is that John has in mind that this old command to love is a command that all the Christians, regardless of their ethnicity, would have heard from the beginning of their Christian walk. In other words, they were taught Christ's message of love for them and his command to love God and others from their earliest days of following Christ. It was central. So God's command to love, that was an old commandment. That was known. It had been around for a long time. But then in John 8, he pivots. He writes that this is, this is an old command to love, but it's also new, which is super confusing if you think about that. How can something that is old also be new? And what John means there is that the love he is writing about is a new quality of love. The newness is a new quality of love. The new commandment to love is not so much a new rule he has, he has written down in addition to another list that's already been created. The newness is in the quality and the expression of love. And what helps us understand it in that way is the Greek language. Our English translation doesn't capture that as much. But in the Greek language, the original language that was written in the New Testament Uh, The Greek word used here is kainos. That's the word that's used for new. And that word kainos, what it means is new in the sense of a new quality. 
you want like a, an application point to think about that, how would you think about that? Uh, think of it like cell phones. All right, cell phones have been around for almost 40 years now. Anybody have the brick one in, in the room? Those are like way old, right? Those are the ones that are about 40 years old. So the, the product, the idea, it, it's not new. It's been around for a while. But the quality of them and the features of them, we, I think we'd all agree, those have certainly improved. So in, in one sense, a cell phone is a cell phone, right? But in another sense, no, it's far more than just a regular phone that you use for making calls. We've even changed the name of them now. Now they're smartphones, right? Hopefully no one has a dumb phone anymore, but that's up on the screen too. So the command to love is new in the sense that there is a new quality of love. And this new quality of love has been made known and revealed in the person who has revealed this new quality of love and made it known is, of course, Jesus. And how do we know that? How do we know John's writing about Jesus? Well, because in verse 8, he says that this new commandment to love is true in him and in you. True in him and in you. And that him is referring to Jesus. And Jesus fulfilled the law of love because no one loved the Father like Jesus did. Jesus was fully obedient to all of God's laws and to the Father's plan for salvation. In the Gospel of John at the last Passover meal that Jesus had with his disciples, Jesus said this in John 14, 31. He said, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. And at the last Passover meal Jesus had with his disciples, I mean, he knew what was coming. He knew he was about to go and suffer a horrible death on the cross. And Jesus knew that the Father's plan to defeat the power of sin and death was for him to fulfill what was written about himself in Scripture. That he needed to go to the cross and to rise again from the dead on the third day. And Paul also wrote of Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father in Philippians 2.8, writing that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So no one loved God. No one loved the Father like Jesus did. But also nobody loved people like Jesus did. Jesus looked upon people with compassion. He healed those with illnesses and diseases and disabilities. He brought people's loved ones back to life. He spoke truth in love. He forgave people. He was not self-serving, but served others. Jesus went after the sinners. He went after those who needed rescued from their sins. He went to tell them that the one who could save them from their sins and the one who could give them the fellowship with God that they really wanted, he offered that. And Jesus loved his he loved his own. He loved his disciples till the end. And so the ultimate demonstration of Jesus' love for people was going to the cross. And one of my favorite scriptures that expresses this is Romans 5, 6 to 8. Paul writes there, For while we were still weak, like that's our condition, while we were still weak, still, like 
constant. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus going to the cross was the ultimate expression of his love for God and his love for others. Jesus was willing to suffer and die on the cross in your place so that if you believed in him, if you believed that Jesus died for your sin, that he paid the price that you justly deserve, and that he rose again to life, and you repent and turn from your sin, and you follow Jesus with your life, he gives you eternal life. Jesus, being God in the flesh, demonstrated a new quality of love that the world had not yet fully seen. In that sense, the command to love was a new command, to love like Jesus loved. And John writes that this love is true in Jesus, but he also says it's in you. It's in his followers. When Jesus' followers make the decision to follow Jesus, their hearts are transformed to having a genuine heart of love for God and for Jesus. And this is all done through the agency of the Holy Spirit. That's what Romans 5.5 tells us. It says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And also, here's a really cool thing. Jesus prayed that for his disciples. You want to talk about answered prayers like we talked about this morning? Jesus prayed that for his disciples in John 17, 26. He says that the love with which he's talking, he's praying to the Father, right? The love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And that's all made possible through the power of God's Holy Spirit when a person places their faith in Christ. If we place our faith and hope in Jesus, then we have his love in us. It changes us to be more and more like him in the evidence of the power of Jesus' love that John writes here, what's the evidence of that? He says, well, the darkness is passing away and the light is already shining. And what does he mean by the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining? Well, it means that the power of the prince of darkness, Satan, his power is fading because of what Jesus accomplished. It, it's going away. And God has a special appointed time in history when Satan is going to go away permanently. And the, and the true light that is already shining, that's a specific direct reference to Christ, to Jesus. That Jesus is the true light. There's several uh, scriptures that we're going to show up here that refers to Jesus being the light. In John's Gospel, he talked about Jesus as the light and the true light. In, in John 1, 4, and 5, he wrote, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then when you read a few verses down of that uh, passage, 
John writes, there's where he calls Jesus the true light. He says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Even Jesus himself called, referred to himself as the light. In John 8, 12, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Isaiah 9, 2, it even prophesied about Jesus being that light, the one who would come and push away the darkness. In verse 2, uh, it says this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Or has, yeah, has light shone. So Jesus, he is the light who has come into the world and his light pushes away the darkness, and is something the darkness cannot defeat. Jesus' light pushes away the darkness of sin and death. And a little more specifically, what Jesus' light is, is it's his salvation. It's his salvation which brings eternal life. Colossians 1.13, if you look that up later, it tells us that the very moment a person receives the gift of salvation you are immediately transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son, to Jesus. Immediately. And at the current time, don't get me wrong here, I watch the news, okay? So even though Jesus is, even though his light is shining and the darkness cannot put it out, we know and can observe, well, there's still darkness present in this world it's still prevalent but you need to know and be reminded that Jesus kingdom is going to continue to advance people are still going to receive Christ right up to the end so the gates of hell Christ's promise is it's already fulfilled in one sense they're not going the gates of hell will not prevail against against it a time is coming, like I said earlier, when God will confine Satan and he'll also confine all those who reject Jesus as the Messiah into eternal darkness, it talks about in Revelation, with suffering in hell. Horrible stuff. But the light of Christ, it speaks in Revelation, that's going to shine most gloriously. See, it's already shining, but it's going to be brightest at some point in the future when it pushes everything else out of the way, completely out of the way, and there's only that light that is shining. In Revelation 20, 23, another one you could look up that references what I'm talking about, it tells us that the source of heaven's light is not going to be the moon, it's not going to be the sun, the source of heaven's light will be Jesus himself. That's how great a light he is. So the fact that the darkness is pushing away uh, the darkness is being pushed away, that it's passing, and the true light is already shining. That's something that Jesus accomplished at the cross. That's where it began. And John is saying that this, that, that reality of what Jesus did at the cross is also a reality in the life of the believer. When we make a decision to follow Jesus, as his love comes into our life, it transforms us. Whatever darkness and sin that we had in our hearts, he pushes it away. He makes our hearts clean. He draws us to himself and he gives us new life. 
And when we are in the light and loving Jesus, we will also love others. Uh, Turn your attention to verses 9 to 11. So love was an old command and a new command. But here's what John wants you to know. He, He wants you to know that this love thing is actually super practical. He's already written about doctrinal components, the the old command to love, what had been known. And he wrote of this new command, the new quality of love that Jesus has revealed in his ministry and at the cross. But now John wants his audience to know that, hey, hey guys, there's a practical side here to Christian love. And it's the practical side of Christian love is that love shines. In other words, we don't just learn doctrine for doctrine's sake, but the doctrines of Christianity understood rightly, understood rightly, is going to transform our way of life. And what stands out to me most here is verse 9, because the phrase, whoever says, whoever says, he is in the light, whoever says, but then hates his brother, is in the darkness. So you cannot claim Christ, you cannot claim Christ and not be changed by him. You cannot claim Christ and not be changed by him. And what John is doing here, as he does a lot through this book, this letter, is he's providing an ethical test for salvation. In other words, how do I know if I really have Jesus or not? Well, John says, here's another test. If a person is wondering whether or not they truly belong to Jesus, well, there should be some evidence shown in their life in how they relate and love others. And really, this ties back to last week's passage and in verses 4 and 5 that I alluded to very early on in this message. Uh, Because he wrote this. John wrote, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But for whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. So twice in this section, in this chapter, John writes, whoever says, whoever says. Have you ever noticed that people can claim a lot of things? They can tell you how to think. They can tell you what you should believe how you should live. But then they themselves, they don't even follow what they're putting out there. I mean, I think we see this pretty constant in our culture today, right? And there's something inside of you that goes, that's just the ultimate hypocrisy, right? That is the ultimate hypocrisy. People can claim that they know Jesus, that they're saved by Jesus, But if you look at their life, is there the kind of fruit in their life that should be there? Is there evidences in that person's life that real life changes happen, that they're walking with Jesus? Because knowing Jesus, what John is saying here, that knowing Jesus, that should change how we live. And John says that the one test to know whether we truly know Jesus or not is in how we love others. So John puts this in really strong terms. I mean, it's, it's really black and white. No sugarcoating, nothing's being hidden here, right? 
He says that if we love others, we are in the light. And if we don't, if we hate our brothers, then we are in the darkness. Really, hating your brother would be doing the reverse of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Romans 13, 8 to 10 says this. Paul wrote this. He says, Owe no one anything except love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, and these are the one another commandments. These are the loving neighbor type commandments. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he appeals back to the law, back to the words that Christ said and affirmed, right? Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So hating your your brother would be doing the opposite of Jesus' teaching on, on love. If you claim Christ, but you're more known to be antagonistic towards Christians or to be indifferent to them, if you don't love Christians at all, are you truly in the light, right? Or, or love anybody if you're, if you're not known as a loving person at all. So this week, um, I heard a pastor say just how much they loved the church and being around God's people. No, it wasn't Pastor Mike or Pastor Simon or Pastor Bill, okay? Um, this was a pastor who was um, a pastor of my parents' church who was retiring, and he was just giving a message on um, the things that he has loved and known about, his, about being in ministry. And this is one of the things he put down. Loved being around the church, loved being around God's people. And so this is a man that had a, a genuine love for Christians, of being around them, that they brought him joy. And so... Followers of Christ should love being around other followers of Jesus. And you might say, well, he's a pastor. He gets paid to do that. He's supposed to do all that stuff, you know, kind of like there's a cynical side in us that thinks that in our head. But think about it. I mean, you know, pastors hear and see a lot of messes in people's life. They see a lot of the messy side. And it's really, quite frankly, it can be very easy to get jaded and, and just to you could easily become bitter. And the other thing is about all this that we're talking about is that we as Christians know that we're not perfect people. Uh, we know that we've been hurt by others or maybe we've hurt others unintentionally or maybe even intentionally. But here's the thing, when we realize that we've done that, if we truly are loving, caring people, we'll be genuinely sorry for it. And if people in the church hurt us, what does Jesus call his followers to do? He calls them to forgive. Colossians 3.13 says, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. We need to remember how much Jesus has forgiven us. But the follower of Jesus, the one who is in the light, it says that he sees where he is going and he has no cause for stumbling. So the word stumble, it's a, 
What that is there, it's a metaphorical reference which expresses sinning against others. A follower of Jesus, a follower of Jesus who is in the light, is not going to stumble into sinning against their brother as a pattern, as a pattern of life. There may be times when we as Christians stumble and and we hurt others. We're not perfect people. We're still living under the fall, and our flesh may get the better of us every now and then. But if you are in the light, if you truly belong to Jesus, you're not going to make a habit or a pattern of your life to intentionally sin against others. When when a Christian sins, sins against others, I mean, it should sting a little. You should be grieved by that. And, and when you recognize your sin, confess it. Be repentant about it. And be reconciled with the person. But the overall direction of a, of a Christian's life is a life of love. That's what it's supposed to represent and reflect. It's to love God and to love others with the quality of love that Jesus loved us. And we won't always do that perfectly. Only Jesus perfectly did those things. But he's our example, right? We love because he first loved us. So we've talked about how the command is both old and new. We've talked about how a Christian, how there's a real practical side to Christian love. It's to shine. It's to transform our hearts. There's a practical side here to loving others. And if love is going to be a way of life for us, then that means love should mature. That Christian love matures. And that brings us to the remaining section of verses 12 to 14. And this section is speaking to the maturing love that a Christian goes through. And John uses three, three different titles to address people that are within the church. One is children, the other is fathers, and the third is young men. First, John affectionately addresses the entire church as little children. He refers to the whole church as little children. And the term children here is a reference to those who placed their faith in Jesus. They are children of God or spiritual offspring of God. And we know this because of what John wrote in uh, John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. John said, but to all who did receive him, for all those who received Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the nor of the flesh, I think I reversed those, but same thing, but of God, born of God. And the assurance that God gives regarding the status of his children is that their sins are completely forgiven. In the Greek, it puts it in the perfect. It's done, settled. All sins are completely forgiven. And the, and the reason that this was done it says right there, for his namesake is, is meaning, this was all done for God's glory. God gets the glory. He gets the credit for the position that his children are now in. There's nothing they did to earn the forgiveness of their sins. The complete forgiveness of sins is applied to all of those who have placed their faith in Jesus, regardless of how much they have matured in Christ. So this is like a blanket Statement to everyone in the church providing assurance to them, God's love towards them. 
So not only are their sins forgiven, but it says in verse 13 that these children know the Father. So I think that what John means here is um, kind of related to what Jesus said about himself in John's gospel. Uh, Jesus said there in John's gospel that, hey guys, if you know me, you're going to know the Father also. And so because of these Christians' relationship to having placed their faith in Jesus, they have access to the Father, that that relationship has been reconciled as well. Jesus is their mediator. And then John addresses the fathers. And and so this is another metaphorical term that John is using. And he's using this to refer to spiritual fathers in the faith. It's not addressing the aged in the church. Because you can be young in the faith, but still have strong spiritual maturity. Um, Or even a young age and have strong spiritual maturity. So, I mean, an example of that would be uh, Paul's Paul's protege, Timothy. Timothy was not very old, but he was strong in spiritual maturity. Or you could be old in your age and not very mature in your walk with Christ. So the use of fathers is not addressing aged Christians who have been around for a while. Rather, these are people who have come to a deep knowledge and love of God and Jesus. They know him who is from the beginning. The third group John addresses are the young men. and These are the ones who are young in their faith and growing in maturity. Again, it's not so much a term for a specific age group in the church. It's a metaphorical way of addressing those who are young in their faith in Jesus. And it says that these young Christian believers are, have overcome the evil one. You overcome Satan at the moment you place your faith in Jesus. Because Jesus, like we sang in that song earlier, he's the one who frees you from enslavement to sin. He's the one who gives you eternal life. And your salvation is sealed forever in Christ. And Satan cannot take that away from you. Because you are made completely new in Christ and belong to him. Other words in the New Testament don't use the word overcome. They'll use the word conquered. An even stronger term, I think. But in, this, but in spite of that reality of overcoming, of conquering, the other reality is that while we are still here in this world, Satan is still going to try to destroy you. Peter even said that he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's still going to try to deceive and wreck your life. But at the end of verse 14, what's happened to these young men? Earlier it's called them overcomers, but now there's some added weight given to their, to their overcoming. These young, maturing believers have become strong. They are not weak in their faith, but strong in their faith. How? How they get strong in their faith? He provides the answer right there. It says, the word of God abides in you. In other words, they grew strong in their faith because of growing in their understanding of the Bible and applying it to their life, of doing the practical part. The reason they grew is because they abided in it. They got close with it. They got familiar with it. And just like our bodies need to be nourished with protein and water and other vital nutrients for our physical growth and strength, the Bible is our spiritual nourishment for for spiritual growth and strength. 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn babes, babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Also, the strength these maturing believers have gained as a result of abiding in God's word has given them the strength to overcome the attacks of the evil one. 
Like I said a moment ago, just because a believer's eternity is secured in Christ doesn't mean Satan will not try to still take you down. And and part of our armor for withstanding the attacks of the evil one and helping us overcome him is knowledge and understanding of the word of God and obeying it. So just bringing it all home, if we truly love God, we'll obey what he says. We'll obey his commands. And his commands are wrapped up in one word, love. God wants us to love him wholeheartedly and to love others. And God showed us a new quality of love in the person of Jesus Christ. God didn't just present us with doctrinal truths that we're to affirm or that we claim to follow and then live differently. God wants us to practically love others, to let our love shine, to be changed by God's love, to make a difference in the lives of those we know in the church and those we know outside of our fellowship. And he wants our love to be maturing. God is always in the work, in the lives of his followers, to, com- to conform them more and more into the image of Jesus. And he does this through the power of his Holy Spirit. And we need to remember that the love of God, it's not a theoretical concept, but his love is a way of life. Let's pray. Lord, um, This is beautiful news. It could also be very challenging and tough news depending on uh, just the direction of our life and where we may be. But even uh, if we're in a spot, Lord, of uh, being hostile towards you, uh, God, you can remove that and you can clean us up. You can take away what is going on in in that attitude. And uh, you can make us new. You can make us clean. And you can transform our hearts through what you did. And there's, there's nothing that we can do to uh, undo the power of sin in our lives. You've done it all. And Lord, this is also uh, just a sobering message too for those of us who are followers of Christ because myself included, I know that I don't love the way I would like to love all the time. And so these are challenging things for all of us to think about and to, um, to grow in. We're thankful, Lord, that for your grace and that your grace is sufficient for us. And uh, let us worship you now for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.